Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. We honor the life and significant achievements of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, but we can only wonder what he would have made of the incredible political mess our country is experiencing now. To help sort some of those things out, we're joined now by one of our show's favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings at 8 a.m., where he reports, he also reports regularly for a number of prominent news organizations. And his book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Good morning. And you have to get up a little earlier on Monday, 7 a.m. <laughs> uh-huh. okay, Otherwise, well, you'll land a democracy now territory, and that's fine, but you'll miss my show. But I didn't, I didn't give a time. I just said Monday mornings. Uh, you, you were preempted today because of Martin Luther King Day, I assume. Exactly so. Uh, Michael G. Haskins did a great job. Well, let's hope that we can cover some of the things you would have discussed on this show now. Sure, um, great. I begin with something startling you've written. You quote, the nation is at a standstill with the people's house stymied by narcissism. <laughs> is, is that a unique situation? Well, because the numbers are so close as a practical matter, it means that the moral rot that was probably always there is uh, more prominent. And so you do have a situation where increasingly the conversation in the Beltway is about what two, uh, and we're up in years, but what two old guys did with their secret papers what did he do with his papers? Where did he leave them? I mean, it's like, it's really bad. And so, meanwhile, the nation has got some profound problems, and we're, you know, just kind of coming to a precipice on a, an iceberg that broke off from the Great Ice Shelf. And uh, there's really very little uh, in the media that is giving us uh, situational awareness about how precarious our circumstance really is. Well, let's look at the local situation. Phil Murphy and Kathy Hochul delivered State of the State addresses for New Jersey and New York last Tuesday. Governor Murphy promised a tax rebate for most homeowners. Will that help homeowners who genuinely need help? Well, it's, it's also, it appears that uh, he's going to uh, not uh, hold some of the corporations accountable in the taxable way that you, you know, through taxation that is required. I think that in both cases, uh, both uh, the Governor Hochul and Governor Murphy are ascribing to the typical neoliberal remedies and fail really to uh, either, they don't want to admit the body blow that COVID did and the lingering impacts that are substantial because they, anyone who was elected to high office during their period of time does not want a retrospective, does not want to look back. And so, you know, the area that I do most of my reporting is at the municipal level mm -hmm. uh, because that's where it's harder to conceal what's going on. And so we see a steady deterioration um, on many fronts, uh, partly because we're having an unprecedented labor crisis. We're in the, in the midst of an economic 
um, contraction, aka recession, whatever you want to call it. But unlike any in our past, it's not driven by the value of money, but by the scarcity of labor and capitalism, particularly this most pernicious late stage vulture capitalism is incapable of understanding that its own survival is not about the survival of money per se, but by promoting working. And so you have a lot of situations where this distortion with a vast amount of wealth that went to the top, I just saw a cry on it said uh, 1% of uh, the country has two thirds of the wealth. That that has created some situations where people are literally stranded at home, dealing with the uh, the uh, earthquake that was COVID. Case in point: two million women who, because of the unprecedented collapse of public education for a prolonged period of time, had to step in on the front at home to keep schooling going. That didn't even happen during the depression. Nineteen thousand healthcare uh, centers closed. The ones that are available have run up in price. So we have any number of, uh, and it could be uh, single parent men who ended up having to stay home. They exist. And so as a consequence, they can't get back into the workforce because there's no place where they can um, leave their kids. So in essence, capitalism is obstructing the ability of people to get back into a productive life. How big a problem is understaffing? New York City's 9-11 EMS daily call volume reached 4,500 on a number of days recently, and FDNY EMS unions warned that their current staffing is so inadequate three years into the COVID pandemic that it puts their members at greater risk and degrades the essential service that they provide to the public. It's true. And I would say that one of the things that is happening is this is an outgrowth of what I described. And I I have to give props to Jerome Powell, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, who said something that has escaped business reporters about the labor force problem. Over a million people died. Let's start there as a top line. Hmm. And so when we talk about a lack of workers, also we have to figure in addition to the millions that were just uh, dislocated for reasons I just explained it to the child care. Imagine that there's several million who were disabled by long COVID. And so and there's also situations where people have had to go from full time to part time because of the need for them to try to hold on to health care. Things are much more, as I said, in a shambles. I'll give you a case in point because it's so important that we ground our reporting not in name calling, but in anecdotal uh, validated reports. I was focusing on, I focus on individuals who, uh, I look for these stories all the time like an anthropologist. I came across a very talented guy who works at a stop and shop, skilled person involved in the fish trade. Uh, he has a full-time job. He is a single parent of twin boys who are 12. Uh, he got custody of them 18 months ago. Those boys were living with their mother several states away. She was murdered. He got custody. They had child. Uh, they had therapy where they were at in the state they were at. Now he has to contemplate leaving his full time job because his union health care won't provide coverage for the kids mental health counseling. That's just one example 
multiplied by hundreds of thousands, where our architecture of healthcare fundamentally fails working people and their families. It is a code red emergency. There should be no other conversation other than that one in Washington, Albany, and Trenton. But because the profit center healthcare industry owns our politicians, we suffer in isolation. Didn't officials representing Mayor Adams' administration have a hard time answering questions at a January 9th city council hearing? Can you tell us about Administrative Code 12-126 and, sure. and then privatization of municipal retiree health care? And is now, that related to what we're discussing here? It is. And it's, it has to do with this anxiety. It's like the whole world is on a banana peel. Um Right now, the city of New York has around 250,000 retirees. Uh, there is, uh, for uh, it's been uh, a pretty much a tradition and part of what we call deferred compensation, that municipal retirees, like the active duty civil service, will have a premium-free health care. And some estimates uh, say that that's meant that uh, folks in the civil service make about 30% on average less than someone in an equivalent job in the private sector. That's hard to do with police and fire because it really isn't anything analogous in the private sector. Over the years, uh, the Municipal Labor Committee and uh, various administrations have tried to keep this commitment. And we went through a period of time, particularly during Michael Bloomberg's period, 12 years, where for several years in a row, he did not complete contracts, left them open, let them run behind. This got the city behind the eight ball in many ways. And now... What was his reasoning? Uh, uh, well, he basically did not like unions or the civil service. And his belief was... Uh, I mean, you've seen so many examples of it. He, he always had the attitude of, you've got to pay for your own raise. And hmm. so basically, over time, the labor leaders internalized um, the uh, miser's approach to public uh, finance and came to accept that, well, that's what we got to do. And so then you have Mayor de Blasio coming in, having to negotiate a hunt, over 100 contracts. And then so what ended up happening is the city drew down lots of resources to try to catch up. And now it's it's faced with a fiscal crisis. Part of that because the federal government is not making a multi-year commitment to backstopping it because of COVID, because there's a lot of denial that the that there is a long term. It certainly it's of a scale of what happened in terms of uh, 9-11. And yet we're not seeing the same multi-year commitment from Congress. We got a couple of years. So now they've got to look places to find economy, a place that they believe that they could do that without injury to the civil service is to have um, retired employees migrate to Medicare Advantage, uh, the fruit of the month now is Aetna. That's the one they're negotiating with. Because uh, the Medicare Advantage is a program where the federal government offers subsidies to these private insurers who manage these plans. Now, these are very controversial. There has been a lot of good reporting in the New York Times and Kaiser Health News that shows that uh, maybe as much as $11 billion has been ripped off by these private insurers who are, uh, and it's been documented. The way they work is they uh, make their money on the margin by creating barriers to care and by making it so that you can't access your care and then they get their subsidy. Or they make you look sicker so they can collect more money from mm -hmm. the government and then squeeze you out 
of what you need in the way of coverage. All of this is coming due now. All of these things that were issues are converging. And so that's what this is about now. The city council has been asked to change this administrative code, which is uh, the thing that covers, it's been in place for a half century, that defines the city's obligations in terms of how it provides and, and keeps its commitment for premium-free health care for retirees and active civil servants. Now, of course, the unions from the – and it even divides the municipal labor committee. I mean, you have the big unions like DC 37 represents around 120,000 workers and dozens of locals. The teachers union, the UFT, uh, they're for it. But you have the firefighters and uh, uh, professional staff congress who represents tens of thousands of – faculty members from CUNY, they're opposed to it. And you have the retirees, this mass movement that does not want to be, because uh, the way this works is if you opt out of what the city offers, you have to pay a premium of $191 to keep what you've got. And there's a lot of people, particularly 9-11 World Trade Center folks, who have who've managed to piece together uh, coverage, and their doctors have told them that if they go with this Medicare Advantage, they won't get coverage. So they're afraid. And, you know, a lot of retirees, you know, the Post does a lot of reporting on the retirees that make six figures. But the reality is the lion's share, the vast number of retirees are, you know, making in that thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 pension, sometimes lower. And they just can't afford the $191. And all that is playing out right now. The city council looks like it's pushing back. But it all stems from the inability to deal with something that is, you know, universal health care. And so that's the thing you don't hear talked about, but it is it's the uh, it's the thing that's driving all of this. Well, the, the strike by nurses at Montefiore Medical Center and Mount Sinai uh, has ended with the hospitals agreeing to add staff improved working conditions. Had either Governor Hochul or Mayor Adams taken a position on the strike? Well, at the end, um, uh, Governor Hochul did um, weigh in rhetorically. I believe that there was some staff and so, you know, she did show an interest uh, uh, generally um, in, in New York City. Elected officials do support the nurses. But the thing that I think we have to come back to is the what is really an obscenity that nurses actually had to sacrifice making a living and risk their livelihood hmm. to make sure that there would be sufficient staffing for the public. So you have to ask yourself, why are nurses being given that heavy lift? Is it because Albany and Washington are totally in the pocket of for-profit health? You betcha. Well, Dr. Philip Ozua, the CEO of Montefiore Medicine, gets millions of dollars in compensation, one of the highest paid hospital executives. Um, how did he and other hospital executives explain their opposition to more pay uh, and more staffing of nurses? Well, this is, it's kind of a reflexive thing. And often the, the professional people that are actually at the table are career people who are aligned with the labor bar, who are just anti-union. And it's very, it's very, there's a lot of folks like this inside the city bureaucracy in terms of managing the civil service. And so they just see it as, see it as a zero-sum game. Uh, one of the things that we permitted to happen is to have, the when we say nonprofit, 
that has really um, they've really stood that on its head. So when you hear nonprofit hospital, you think, oh, my goodness, it all must be a bunch of Clara Bartons getting the pittance. Mm -hmm. The reality is, as you say, the pay structure is more reminiscent of Wall Street. And yet they have all of these benefits, tax benefits, nonprofit status. So in essence, we are subsidizing through the tax structure these predatory profit health care providers. And the nurses are really the only sentient beings that are standing up to it at all. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, streaming live at uh, WBAI.org, is Robert Henley. Uh, he's a regular contributor to the show and also a, uh, a regular on WBAI. And Bob, uh, where are some of the places they can read you? So the cycle is we've got this great independent labor website called WorkBytes. Uh, mm -hmm. John Maniscalco, Steve Wisnia, uh, Tim Shirt, and myself. Uh, and that covers New York City, New York State, and the country. Uh, that's the place I, I maintain uh, space at City Hall. I cover City Hall. Then on the New Jersey side of uh, the Hudson River, I write for Insider NJ. I also write for the newly constituted Village Voice. And then my things are syndicated through Salon uh, and then show up in so many other places after that. Uh, and what's just fascinating, it's just curious. Uh, now I would say that they just proliferate. You know, I'm seeing stuff show up all over the place, uh, mainly because there is a lack of labor reporting. And it's something I've been at mm -hmm. for a long time. And so. I find myself in a, in a fortunate position that this is something that um, g grows exponentially in terms of interest. Phil Murphy and Kathy Hochul delivered State of the State addresses for New, New York and uh, New Jersey last Tuesday. Um, Governor Murphy promised a tax rebate for most homeowners. Will that help homeowners who generally need help? Well, I, as I said before, I think that... Um, it, it certainly won't hurt, but you. I think you have to step back and talk about the the reality that we still we're dealing with the issue of like foreclosure. We're dealing with eviction. None of that stuff went away. And what about New Jersey renters? Thirty six percent of New Jersey residents are renters. Has the governor or any other political leader proposed help for renters? Well, what's happened is they did. They did have they do have a program that's been a patchwork, but they're not dealing with the fallout that comes from ending what was in place during COVID. And this is something that we're starting to see around the country. So and for instance, like a good example would be on the federal level. We had six months of the expanded child income tax credit from the American Rescue Plan that lifted millions of children out of poverty. And then, unconscionably, but typically, Congress let it lapse. And so that's because Joe Manchin was worried that people would buy drugs with it. Uh, and so as a consequence, those people went back into poverty. So it's been a real roller coaster. So it's the failure to address, like I said, the dislocation that is still happening off of COVID. 36% of New Jersey residents are renters. Has the governor or any other political leader proposed help for them? 
Well, I think it's left pretty much to um, uh, local tenant organizations to make noise about this. The run-up in uh, in New Jersey, rent control is a very spotty thing. There are some jurisdictions like Hackensack that have it, but it's really uneven. And that, so I, I would say to you that, and with inflation, there has been such a uh, a squeeze where people are spending more and more for the for less and less in terms of physical space. I expect to see a real jump in what they call rent burden. These are people that are paying. I think the threshold now is over thirty five percent, and that's a growing army in New Jersey. No, in New York, 46% of the residents are renters. That's a state. 68% of New York City residents are renters. Has Governor Hochul done anything uh, to help them? Well, I think what they want to have is what they're working towards and are still pushing for is, like I say, carrying over this uh, support of individuals in the eviction process. There was some success with that when Mayor de Blasio introduced it, which was to make sure that people had representation. And that program and, and that approach is is feeling the stress of what's happening. So none of this. I mean, I would say that they're in the attitude of uh, the overall uh, philosophy guiding both New Jersey and New York by the governors in power is that they've got to try to ratchet down spending, control spending, because we're at a period of time that demands austerity. And so that uh, no matter what they do in the margins and in these in, into particular, um, you know, stovepipes of issues, their overarching approach is to not tax the corporations and the top one percent that have made a killing. And so a, a case in point would be we really there's no uh, look at what's happening with the stock transfer tax. We've talked about this before in this program. Early part of the 1900s, a Republican governor imposes a nickel per hundred dollar tax on stock mm -hmm. transactions in, in New York state. That happens, goes on for decades. And then in late 1970s, Governor Kerry and Democrats decide they want to really do something to ensure that Wall Street stays where it is. And they start refunding it. And they have been refunding it ever since to the tune of over three hundred and fifty billion dollars. Mm -hmm. This kind of stock transfer tax is in place in London since the 1600s. And yet, at the same time, what's been happening? We have shrunk the commitment to our public workforce, told them that they have to, uh, you know, we've gone back on their pension commitments. We've closed hospitals. And meanwhile, we've shifted a third of a trillion dollars to Wall Street and are still doing it today. And the, the city is becoming more and more expensive. I'm not sure that uh, I can believe something I read in the paper the other day, that rents in many parts of Manhattan and other parts of the city are nearing $4,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. That goes back to what I'm right. right. That's, isn't that's that a reason that people are leaving the city? Well, I think uh, that there's a, there's a host of reasons. Nothing ever happens for one reason. But hmm. I think you have to look at the fact that there has been a, a seismic shift in the social contract related to work. And this is something that uh, we've had this traumatic event related to COVID. 1.1 million people have died. 
Um, we are 4% of the world's population and between 14 to 25% of the COVID casualties, depending on how you parse the data. And so people are now reevaluating because the institutions that we trusted to keep us safe, the government, our corporations, failed us dramatically. And so we have to construct a life that works that's based on our own priorities. It's about protecting ourselves and our families. This is a new architecture of consciousness, which our power structure does not understand because it is not about accumulating wealth. It's like we're speaking a different language. So you're right. People are looking at things and saying, oh, I have to report into work because Mayor Adams says that we are to prime the pump. I have a civil service job, say, paying $60,000 a year. I have to go into New York City to hold on to that job. Oh, I can do the same thing from home working in South Carolina. I think I'll go. So, so is that the this reason? Is happening. Is that the reason that from 2021 to 2022, New York State's population declined by the largest percentage of any state in the country? And it was declining even before the pandemic. Uh, it's New York. I've always heard people say New York is the, the best, you know, one of the, the greatest places in the world. Uh, have we become less appealing? Well, I would say that and this is uh, this is something that's been going on oh, for like, you know, years and years and years. You have the, the fact that the federal government, uh, the way that that works is wealthier states, states like New York and New Jersey, send in all kinds of money and billions of dollars and get back a fraction of that, often like ranking last or 49th in rate of return. And so as a consequence over time, our infrastructure degraded uh, our roads, the things that are the connectivity of any uh, community declined. And the wealth was transferred to places like Florida. So the red states that wanted yeah. to, you know, dissolve the union, ironically, have been getting a payday for a long time. So the, the populations of, of New Jersey and other northeastern states have also declined, but they have increased in the south. Uh and is it a matter of taxation or is it a it's a, a combination of safety would, is that a, an issue well no i would say that i mean you have to understand when we talk about the issue of uh crime when i started uh, as a journalist we're talking about 2200 homicides a year now people get upset when it looks like it's going to 500 so um mm. and, and i would say to you that what's happening is people are making their choices uh, informed by this upended labor market and add to it that there is, like I said, this this issue of um, the inability, particularly for young people. I mean, here's another thing. Our young people come up through high school and they are saddled with college debt. If they want to get ahead, if they would like to have kids, it's impossible to uh, for most. I mean, some they're fortunate to actually buy or start their life in the place where they were brought up because they are burdened by this um, albatross around their neck of student debt, which is still not resolved. And so 
the only way if you're a thinking person is to back is to move to an area where the cost of living is lower where hopefully you can put your college education to work and get a good wage and begin to bring down your student debt and then have a shot at being able to uh, buy a place to raise a family. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. has a regular show on Monday mornings here on WBAI. Uh, he is uh, he reports regularly for a number of prominent news organizations, and uh, his book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And uh, before we get back to uh, the, the problems that face our area, just a moment, Bob. Uh, the problem that faces the radio station mm-hmm. we're on. We are always underfinanced. And uh, we have a really nice uh, offer for our listeners uh, who are listening to this show today. We are offering a three-CD set of Martin Luther King's labor speeches if they become members of BAI for $75 or more. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is good. And I would say that uh, I I think that one of the things that recommends BAI is that this is a place where that linkage between Dr. King and the labor movement is made expressly. Mm. You can listen all day on the corporate news media and you won't hear that connection. Similarly, you will hear, and I'm sure you already have had her today, the linkage that Dr. King made between the obscene military expenditures that this country is actually you know accelerated uh and so that's this this labor connection when you get this package you'll be able to pass it on and you can't tell what the effect will be particularly if you're a teacher and you play this and then you students can start making these connections because unfortunately as teachers know who are listening Often the labor curriculum is something that the teacher has to be brave enough to teach because it's not something that is baked into our elementary or secondary systems of education. It should be. So it's up to us. And so one way that you can keep this um, uh, this beacon of, of a free radical thought alive is by commemorating Dr. King's voice and helping to make those connections. Uh, for for young people by making sure that we pass along in the form of the oral tradition that is Dr. King's words. So if you would like to uh, support us and would like to get that three CD set, you can go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. And you have to do it during this show. Uh, to receive it. Now, um, Governor Murphy said 
that people in New Jersey, quote, don't want to see Washington-style dysfunction and chaos. How does the performance of New Jersey state government compare with Washington's? Uh, is it as uh, politically divided as uh, so much of the rest of the country is? Well, no. It is uh, deeply blue enough uh, that there isn't that kind of hijinks. But uh, we do have a situation where um, the party apparatus, the Democratic Party, uh, is kind of a monoculture, right? It's not, uh, it's not ideologically diverse. Uh, it is very risk-averse. Uh, I'll give you an example, a head-to-head comparison. New York State has the infusion of some new energy, um, socialist, DSA, uh, progressives uh, who have who got into the legislature once they got rid of that rump caucus of reactionary Democrats that were siding with the Republicans in the Senate. They created an opportunity where you may remember that um, they were able to raise taxes on the super wealthy and to actually create a $2 billion fund that undocumented workers who were impacted by COVID could benefit from it. And, and meanwhile, in New Jersey, that would have been radioactive. I think they came up with $40 million. And it's it's important to understand that the nature of this labor force, the, the lot of the lion, lion's share of people that are doing the essential work uh, were people that were many, many, many undocumented individuals. And that includes in the assisted living facilities, in all kinds of uh, places. And they're the ones that were at risk. And so, for instance, uh, New Jersey had billions of dollars in surplus from the American Rescue Plan kicking around, and the unions wanted $100 million in hazard pay, means-tested for those who made under 75000 who put themselves at risk, hundreds of whom died from COVID, and the legislature has not moved on that. And so it is very much a, um, a legislature that responds pretty much just to commercial interests. It's really, it'll do some window dressing things around the holiday but it's a gold dome for a reason. Uh, it is it is about helping corporations amass great wealth. If some social policy can can happen, there's some diversity. That's nice. But there's really no great breakthrough thinking going on there. In 2021, Phil Murphy became the first Democratic governor to be reelected since Brendan Byrne was reelected in 1977. But he's term limited. Do you think he's positioning himself for national politics? Might he run for president? Well, I mean, that's, of course, what this, um, there's a lot of press that's usually like the second or third paragraph in a story about mm. uh, Governor Murphy. Uh, his win was pretty close. Uh, I mean, um, Assemblyman, former Assemblyman Chitterelli came really close to deposing him. It was, you know, thousands of votes, uh, mm-hmm. considering where we were in politics and what an aversion the state has to Donald Trump, uh, Murphy's anemic performance, I, I think it's going to be certainly a footnote uh, uh, on any ambitions he might have. Like, people are going to remember that. Uh, turnout was very poor. Uh, and in general, I would say the New Jersey Democratic Party, it does have guaranteed incumbency in some places, but looking at how poorly it per- turned out, um and looking, for instance, at um, you had Malinowski, a Democratic incumbent, lose to Tom Kane Jr. in that race um, uh, in the center of the state. 
it, it like I, they they seem to be just kind of coasting along to get along, and I don't know that he's got that Murphy can take this national. I don't think there's anything that's so compelling that is gonna where it's gonna be like an Obama ascendancy. But uh, New York also went bluer than uh, I mean went redder than. Uh, it, uh, people predicted. Uh, so the, are there other factors, a reason why these states are still um, so divided? Uh, and how do New York, Jer- New Jersey's politics compare with New York states, considering the fact that in many cases we're almost linked together? So I, I would say that uh, what you saw is losing ground, uh, compare um, what happened in Michigan or Pennsylvania, where you had an energized base, where you had um, the state in, in both Michigan um, and in uh, Pennsylvania, there was a groundswell, the base was in operation, the imagination of the electorate was engaged, they really felt what they were doing was of epic significance. That just was not the case in New Jersey or New York. And as a consequence, the turnout um, was anemic and dropped from the last uh, midterm. Remember, the last midterm across the country, uh, that would be 2018, uh, set, you know, um, records. You have to go back like 100 years. So part of that, I would say, is when you don't have the way that people can express their support is by voting. It's not, I think, to just measure the results of the election in terms of what the returns were, that doesn't tell the whole story. The whole story is who sat on the sidelines. And so I think you have to look at brand fatigue. We have an alpha male like Andrew Cuomo stayed entirely too long, had made his tenure all about himself entirely. I mean, this this wears on the electorate over time. The way that New York has had this systemic corruption Shelly Silver, the long drumbeat of of people that are convicted or indicted. Sim cannot really. I mean, look what happened to Governor Hochul's lieutenant governor. That, uh, that was kind of like a three card money, right? He disappeared. He got indicted. I mean, this is the Democratic Party has to take responsibility for the quality of the candidates. Well, and it, governor- and, and it should be ashamed. I mean, look at this guy Santos. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Governor Hochul vetoed over 150 bills after the November election, including environmental regulations and protections for workers. So is she proving to be a rather conservative Democrat? I, she I also think has continued she... to back Judge Hector LaSalle to be chief judge on the New York Court of Appeals, uh, despite the opposition of quite a few progressives. So I would say that, oh, boy, you're really good at giving me like three things at the same time. And so let's take your time and answer them all. (laughs) Right, 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 right. So on on the question of of Judge LaSalle, uh, what's happened now is what people have been focused on, uh, particularly in the labor movement, was a decision that he was part of, uh, which basically uh, was going to hold responsible um, the union uh, people who were involved with a uh, a dispute with the cable company, I think it was the prior owner to uh, 
uh, Charter Spectrum, the prior license holder. I don't know if it was Warner or whatever, but they they were taking issue with the way that the company had handled Sandy in their preparations. A totally valid thing for um, a, the representative of, uh, of a union to be doing. And what the court found was that they had they could be held individually, personally liable for the statements that they were making in their capacity of representing their members. That is horrendous. That provides a tool that like that corporations don't need, but one that they gave them anyway. And so we're not talking about and I would say that Judge Salas's nomination. It's really uh, it's really about the fact that for a long time. The legal profession, and I'm married to an attorney, so I can say this, has become a total subsidiary of wealth building. There are some public interest lawyers. That's nice. But the bar itself, the actual bar itself, is a protection racket. If you look at what happens to lawyers that rip off their clients, it's all about damage control, and they can barely police themselves. It has also put the overlay that so many judicial positions are involved in New York State with elections. And so what you really have here is the fact that the judiciary in New York State, like the Supreme Court, have been the stagehands and enabled this vast amassing of wealth in this country. You can't just say that this was like a weather event. This happened because they own the courts. If you look at the process of judge selection, you look at, I mean, this gentleman, I'm sure he's uh, qualified professionally. He was a former prosecutor. It's very rare that you have someone from in that public interest realm that is using the law and the public interest rise to the level of like we did with Judge Jackson, have that person rise to the level of uh, a, uh, a Supreme Court uh, kind of status. And so that's really what this is about. They, I know the Post wants to make it about identity politics. And yeah, but, the he, left but, and he's the right. po- but he's being opposed by many people in the Latin community, and he is a, a Latino. Right. And I think that to this degree at this point, that getting involved with identity politics obscures the greater macro issue which is the fact that the law has become so disconnected from the communities that it serves. Now, you mentioned identity politics. Uh, one of the, the, the biggest stories, and maybe we don't even have to discuss it because it's just been covered in such depth, is the George Santos story. Uh, still hard to, to know what his identity is. He's given us a whole bunch of names and all sorts of other things. Um, is it important to note where he, the area that he represents? He represents uh, the third congressional district, which covers parts of Queens and northern Nassau County. I would say that, and I, I, I have to say, I was um, pleasantly surprised by the way that the Nassau County Republican organization mm-hmm. um, stood up, Republicans, uh, and and asked for his ouster and resignation. Uh, George. His situation is symptomatic of the fact that the Trumpification of our politics. And because even as we speak now, there really is no no accountability and hasn't been for Donald Trump, and there may not be. And and so, for instance, the fact that they were unable to, to um, hold people accountable, responsible for January 6th, 
And now those same individuals are nominally in control of the House. That means that to some degree, the coup succeeded. And the fact that now all whatever momentum for Democratic issues has got to be hung up on uh, us looking for Joe Biden's secret papers when the country is in such deep distress. I mean, they should just be profoundly embarrassed. I mean, it is and, and, and it's a distraction. And so I would say that oh, in the case of Santos, that, that the fact that uh, there was no opposition research done that stuck, the fact that you had um, a news media that, you know, I think a local paper uh, did some stuff that wasn't picked yeah. up. But we, we have a very anemic local press right now. And so and you also have a situation where there were people that signed on to support his campaign only because of his party with no due diligence done about it. And so, I mean, if, if Donald Trump could, could he do what he does, why can't Santos do what he does? I mean, it, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, on another area, Governor Hochul proposed pegging the minimum wage to inflation. Would that be enough to help low wage workers? Because uh, the minimum wage has lagged behind inflation for yeah. decades. So let's parse this out of it. So there's a federal minimum wage, which has been stuck at um, an embarrassing seven twenty-five. Wow. New York State New York State has uh, been enlightened, and thanks to the work of CWA, SEIU, um, uh, the, the New York uh, City uh, Central uh, Labor Council, state FLCIO, it's much higher than that. But the reality is that, particularly in this inflationary cycle, we're talking about really needing in the high 20s per hour, really. Um, I would recommend to anyone really interested in this looking at um, the economist James Parrott's work, because he's got the probably the best hold on what's happening in New York City in terms of working people. And so uh, and the reality is, as long as you have a Federal Reserve that perceives the crisis at hand to be about the value of money and that with they're willing to use, quote unquote, their tools of driving up interest rates because they want to throttle wages, then we're going to we're going to have this zero sum game. And the reality is that people now are dealing with the fact that they got a little hint of some um, increased wages, but that's been washed away by what's happening in terms of inflation and then add to it. And this is why it's good to come back to this, the, the issue of health care coverage. So in New Jersey, we're looking at local police, nurses, civil servants are looking at a 20 to 24 percent increase in health care premiums. Like, how can how can Governor Murphy or any Democrat say they're friends or working people and just let that go down mm. and just like ignore it like it's not their problem? That will amount to a wage cut, even if they're successful at the table of getting um the, the kind of raise. I mean, what the nurses got over three years, 19.2% over three years. That means you're still losing ground. So in essence, forget hazard pay, we're going to cut your pay. And so that's why I say to you, like, it's nice that she says something like that. And yes, uh, but I, I think that we should really be doing is they're so focused on wages. Let's index profits. There's an idea. 
Now, Bob, we have just a, about a minute and a half left, but I wanted to talk about something uh, that you wrote in an essay on InsideNJ.com, uh, where you wrote about the health and environmental issues surrounding infrastructure development right. in New Jersey. How much construction is projected for New Jersey or New York? Um, and what effects do they have on the health of people who live near the roadways that might be built? So uh, this was, uh, I followed up, there was a great New York Times piece a couple of weeks ago that looked at, profiled what was happening in California with Route 710 in Los Angeles, there's the port area there. And they, in that case, concerns about the environment, the fact that it um, was having an impact in terms of diesel emissions on the surrounding community. These communities are predominantly uh, communities of color, uh, many, many essential workers. And then they looked at what was happening with uh, the New York, uh, New Jersey Turnpike, the extension and expansion project, about 10 some odd billion dollars in change that's going to run from the um, Holland Tunnel to Newark Bay Extension. In that case, the it state says it's going to take poor people areas, doesn't it? Exactly. And so what I looked at is the fact that diesel emissions uh, is something that has uh, led to premature death for both workers and for people who live in these communities, corridor communities. And it, Martin Luther King Day is an appropriate time to be looking at the things we ignore the rest of the time. And historically, we have not looked at the impact of what happens when these high-density, high-volume places are go through these communities and the fact that it leads to premature death, it leads to generations of children suffering with asthma, absenteeism, and so what I was suggesting in that piece, like we take a, lead, uh, a page out of the California book, there they're going to be using that money that was earmarked for as highway expansion to do things like retrofit the community uh, places like the schools in these communities that need to have upgrades of HVAC, looking to do green space. I mean, that that's the kind of um, uh, reparations that we need to be making so that we can meet the challenge of the climate crisis and heal these generational wounds of the abuse of diesel emissions. Have any states made significant advances in reducing emissions and traffic-related pollution and, as a result, improved public health? Well, and, and the one case I follow very closely was in California, around the ports of uh, L.A., they made a commitment to... Uh, require the truck haul, all the haulers have the latest in diesel technology. And there is some good news there. There's been some tremendous advancements in diesel engineering. And so later models can't, are just far and above in terms of emissions. And so they took this requirement and put it on that area of the port, and then it's, it's going to be extended to the state of California. And they saw a 20% reduction in childhood asthma. So there's a concrete example of focused discipline action that treats people like they matter. Bob, we've run out of time, unfortunately. There's so much more to talk about. But yeah. people should listen to your radio show on WBAI and check out your writings at any number of different uh, places. Uh, again, and at Stuck Nation. I'm at, at, at Stuck at Nation Stuck is Nation. my Twitter filter, yes. And uh, the book is called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. And uh, now I'm going to have to ask people 
to support this station. Anything you want to say, or should I just go through um, the the ex the explanation of why they should? Well, I, I would just say that, uh, particularly through this public health crisis, uh, we have been a place where EMTs and working people who gave so much and put so much at risk to tell their stories. And um, that meant that often we were ahead of the curve because we had the people that were doing so much for us uh, on the air. So if that matters to you, if it matters mm -hmm. to make sure that, that, that people that are putting their lives at risk to keep us all well um, have a place where they can express their experiences and help guide public policy, then this is really the only place doing that. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for all the help he gives us in preparing interviews like this. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of around 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Uh, if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is LeonardLopateAtWBAI.org. But right now we have to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax deduction contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's given the number to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. If you become a member of WBAI for $75 or more today, we would be happy to send you a three-CD set of Martin Luther King's labor speeches. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5. I mean, for, for $10, $15, $20, $25, however many dollars you're comfortable with. Um, either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, and don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of London Lopate at Large from all of us at the station. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thank you.